Hi there and welcome to Raising Resilient Teens, the podcast version. My name is Sasha Lester and I'm so grateful you're here with me today, where we talk about all things teenagers, raising teenagers and the joys that go with it. With that, let's kick it off. Hello there and welcome back to another episode of Raising Resilient Teens. My name is Sasha Lester and I will be your host for the next 30 to 40 minutes. And today I'm joined by Miss Candace Platter who joins us all the way from Vancouver and apparently it's snowing over there at the moment which is uh, which I'm very jealous of. Today we're going to be talking about addictions. As some of you or a lot of you may know, this uh, this particular subject is very close to my heart um, with Harry going through that dark rabbit hole of despair, as I, um, as I like to call it. So, Candice, I will throw to you. Thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. I know the time is different. Um, if we can start, if you can just let the listeners know just a little bit about you, your background, um, and what you do now, that that would kick us off. Okay, sure. Hi, everyone (laughs) in Australia. So I am an addictions therapist, and I work primarily with families of people who are struggling with addiction, because there's a lot of help out there for people who are having trouble with addiction, at least there is here in Canada, there's a lot of help, you know, there are rehab centers and detoxes and counseling and self-help groups and all kinds of things. But there's very little help for the loved ones who are struggling and suffering right along with them. And they are often terrified and totally baffled and confused and not knowing what to do. So I help them understand what they need to do. So that's what I do. I, um, I've i been doing this for about 30 years. I'm an addict myself in recovery. I am 35 years clean and sober from anything mind-altering. The only thing I really have a problem with now is just chocolate, but I think <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I've done worse, and I if love chocolate. If that's the worst, then we're, we're doing okay. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really doing okay. I, I have to be careful with it, though, because I would love to eat chocolate for breakfast and chocolate for lunch and chocolate for dinner and chocolate for snacks, and I'd be very happy living that life. I know that that's not okay to do, so I'm careful. I had a 15-year opioid addiction, which started with because of doctors giving me a lot of very addictive medications for Crohn's disease. I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Uh, I've had it for close to 50 years now. And um, when I was first diagnosed, the doctors had no idea what to do for me. It was a new a new disease on the block kind of thing. And um, so instead of instead of treating it in the kinds of ways that they hopefully are treating it now. Um, they just prescribed Valium and Oxycontin and Codeine and Demerol and Morphine and anything really that I wanted to get me out of their office and make me not cry. You know, um, for people who don't know what Crohn's disease is, it's a it's an inflammatory bowel disease. It's very painful. 
I've had a lot of surgery as a result of it. Um, it's just a very difficult disease to manage and a, and a difficult disease to have. So, and unfortunately, a lot more people have it now. So, a lot of people know what it is. So, if you think about these medications, I was also using pot addictively, Valium, pot, opioids. They, these are all depressants in the human system. They're not like cocaine, which are uppers and everybody feels really energetic and good for a minute. Um, these are depressants. And uh, after 15 years of using these, I was incredibly depressed. I, I didn't know what was happening to me. My life was falling apart because of this illness. I didn't have any, I felt like I had no joy in my life. It was really, it was really a difficult time. And I started thinking about how many pills I had in my bathroom cupboard and how I could take a whole lot of them and how I could kill myself and how I could time it so nobody would find me in time. You know, yeah. I scared myself because I really yeah. thought that I might do this. But they do think about it. Yeah. People in these situations. And if they tell you that they don't, then I think they're lying to themselves as well as lying to you. Um, like it's just thoughts that cross your mind. Um, and I know there was a dark place that um, that my son went to and, and he openly expressed you know I've just had enough like like his Muay Thai teacher was also quite concerned about him as well and and you're you're right in saying that it's the family that really struggles because I know hand on heart that I didn't know what to do and no. yes there was all this support out there for my son um if we could actually get him to go and that's another question that I've exactly. asked later. exactly but yep. you know um, he didn't want to go. We couldn't make him go. And I'm just talking about like um, psychiatrists and and doctors and all the rest. And you spoke earlier about um, like rehab centres. And you know we made the phone call to a number of rehab centres, and all of them said, "Look, you know, unless your son has actually admitted to having the problem like that, they indicated that was the first step, and then the second step being, you know." that he wants to willingly get help like they couldn't do anything and I threw I kind of threw around the word intervention but you know there was no amount of um forcing or mothering or you've got to do this like that it just doesn't work and is that the same like over in Canada as well well a lot of people think so I don't think so I think there are things that parents can do and um the problem is that nobody's telling you about that except for somebody like me right right and and um, there aren't that many people like me who work with the families who uh, who teach them what they actually can do. It's not. It might not work a hundred percent of the time. There's no guarantee that it will, but it'll work a lot better than not doing anything. Or you know, right? So there are things that that families can try. Yeah. When you were going through your addiction, and it is quite some time ago, what steps mm. did you take back then in order to try to get yourself? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like what what you're saying. Um, this was back several decades and addiction was not on the radar.
are than the way it is now. I didn't realize that I was an addict. I had no idea what was going on for me. Um, I I reached out for help. I called the crisis center in our city and somebody there listened to me and basically saved my life because of how respectful they were and some of the things that they suggested. And I spent, I, I, I allowed myself to um, voluntarily go into a psych ward for about four weeks. And I, and that was what I needed to do. I mean, it's quite a trip to be in a psych ward, but um, I remember it, even though it was a really long time ago, but I needed to be there. I needed to get the counseling. I needed to know that somebody else had my clothes and my car keys that I couldn't be out in the world, you know? And while I was there, I learned about 12 step programs. I started going to Narcotics Anonymous and um, I, I have some really mixed feelings about 12 step programs. So maybe we can talk about that. They don't work for everyone and they have actually what I consider to be kind of a dangerous message. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, what happened for me is that I knew I reached quite a low bottom. I, I knew that I was on the edge of killing myself. I, I don't think you get too much lower than that. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so this is, this is kind of what needs to happen for most addicts is that they need to, they need to start feeling uncomfortable in this life of addiction. They need to really want something different. And this is where the family comes in because you can help that to happen faster. And, and that's what, that's what really, you know, the family is so um, integral to the client, to the addict's recovery, but the family, you know, they need their family so much, but the families need to be emotionally healthy and they need to know what to do. Otherwise they, they do the wrong things and the addiction just goes on and on and things yeah. happen from there. Like people die out there from addiction. Two questions. Were you more scared for yourself or for others when you were at the height of your addiction? You mean in terms of killing myself? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. I was more scared for me. I didn't yeah. have a lot of family support. I wasn't one of the one of those people who had a lot of family support. That I, was my next I came question. From a family. Yeah. It, it was not a fun uh, a fun family to come from. Um, it just really wasn't a picnic. And my parents weren't particularly interested in what was happening for us. They were pretty self absorbed. So um, so yeah, Do you think I that I had was, an effect like your absolutely um, yeah absolutely yeah because you know I I've spent the last thirty five years in recovery working on this kind of stuff for myself. A lot of this has been healed for me. Most of it has. But at that point, yeah, I felt very alone in the world. I felt, you know, like really I had no place. I didn't belong here. Nobody would miss me. You know, it was that kind of feeling. I think I might have been right at that actually. When when Harry was doing the drugs and taking the drugs, there were people in our inner circle that they obviously knew, they found out, and they said to me, Harry's not welcome around here um, un until he gives up the drugs. And, and I said to them, it's not something that you can just wake up one morning and go, okay, no more for me today. And, you know, it takes time and it's a process. And for you to put those boundaries on him, that's like literally pushing him away when you, as part of his inner circle, should be bringing him closer and, you know, holding him close with love rather than you go away and sort your shit out 
and then you can come back. Like that's how I mm. felt it. They were quite adamant. They're like, no, um, you know, when he sorts himself out, you know, we can reconnect. How easy is it to to get off it, to get off the stuff? Because there's parents yeah, out there it, listening that yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, there's no cookie cutter answer for that. It depends on the person. It depends on the drugs they're using. It depends on how long they've done it and why they're doing it. But I, um, I see this in a different way than many addiction people see it because I what I know to be true today is that anybody that's in recovery like I am makes the choice every day to be in recovery to not use to not do addiction we make the choice I know as an addict that it's the same thing for people who are in active addiction whether you see addiction as a disease which I don't because I have a disease that has no cure addiction has a cure you can stop using you know Um, whether you see it as a disease or you see it as a genetic predisposition or however you want to see addiction underneath all of that is a choice that we're making to either stay in active addiction or come out of it and be in recovery. So I don't think that anybody chooses to become an addict. I don't think anybody says to themselves, gee, let's be an addict. You know, that'll be fun. Let's do that. Nobody nobody says that. But once we're in that situation, we can make a different choice and we, we do have help that we can get when we decide to make that choice. And the way that addicts make that choice is when their families um, learn how from a place of love, you know, my business is called Love with Boundaries, because we need to love our addicts. And we also need to have boundaries. If we don't have boundaries, we're basically contributing to them staying stuck in addiction. So what we need to do is be able to set boundaries with consequences that matter to the addict and make them a little bit more uncomfortable making the choice to stay in addiction. And we do that from a place of love, not a place of anger, not a place of, you know, that frustration to the best of our ability anyway. We do it from a place of love. I love you so much. I love you so much that I am not willing to support you staying in active addiction. I will support you in going into recovery. I'll do whatever I can to help you do that. But it tears my heart out to see what you're doing to yourself. It's not helpful to you for me to support that in any kind of way, whether it's money or there's all kinds of ways that people enable an addict mm-hmm. to stay in active addiction. So the the, the the trick, if you will, the, the, the thing that has to happen is that the family needs to say, you know, if you're going to stay in active addiction, things are going to change. Like either you're not going to be able to live at home with us, or that's usually something that comes later. You know, you have to leave. It comes later. There are things that, you know, we have different expectations of you. If you are going to stay here and live with us, we will not allow you to have drugs or paraphernalia in the house. You know, you're not to drink in the house. You're not to you're not to sleep all day and and then be up at night and at three o'clock in the morning when you're hungry, you go to the kitchen and you bang the pots and pans around while we're trying to sleep. Like we're raising the bar here for you. We're holding you accountable for your own choices. And if you're going to make the choice to stay in active addiction, then some things are going to change because we love you, not because we don't love you. This isn't a punishment. Mm. This is Mm. to help you have a life that's better for you and better for us. You mentioned that um, there are some things that people do to continue to enable addictions. Can you recap some of what some of those things are? The dynamic that usually happens in a family when there is an addict, the loved ones, at least some of the loved ones are, you know, there's a buzzword in the addiction, in addiction circles, it's called codependent. And maybe you've heard of that. And what codependency means 
is, is that you, if you're codependent, you're putting other people's needs ahead of your own. You're putting your own needs on the back burner on a fairly consistent basis. So just think of it this way. You've got a self-absorbed addict that wants what he wants when he wants it, doesn't want to be given the word no, will get angry, will punch a hole through the wall, become physically aggressive. And you've got a codependent person, a people pleaser. Those two terms are synonymous. You've got a people pleaser who does not like conflict at all, has never really learned how to, you know, how to deal with conflict. So that person is going to say yes a lot more often than they should. And really when they want to say no, and really when they should be saying no. Um, so this is generally what happens. And the family members need to be working on themselves and changing that about themselves, toughening up a little bit, um, understanding, going underneath that and understanding where that codependency comes from. How did they learn to be people pleasers? How did they learn that that was, how did they feel that that was a safe way to be in the world? Because if they continue that behavior, the addict is going to continue to manipulate and stay in addiction. So some of the ways that people enable to answer your, your question, the most common one is money. Hey mom, I need I need 20 bucks. And some a people pleaser who doesn't want conflict is going to think, oh, well, 20 bucks. I mean, what's 20 bucks? You, you know where that 20 bucks is going to go. You know it's going to go into their arm, up their nose, down their throat, and you give them 20 bucks anyway because you think it's probably loving to do that. Mm. It's not. It's not a loving act to contribute to addiction. It never is. So that's one of the most classic ways that people, I've known family members who have driven people, driven their addicts to the liquor store or driven driven them to uh, the dealer because at least they know where they are. They're right yeah. next to them in the car, you know, and sometimes they pay for the alcohol in the liquor store. People don't know how to say no and they, they don't know how to set the boundaries and maintain the boundaries. If you're not going to maintain a boundary, don't set it. But another way is allowing an addict to, to be really obnoxious with you, especially if they live in your home that you're paying for. They're not mm. paying for it. They're not buying the food. They're, you know, you're doing their laundry, you're cooking their meals, you're doing everything for them. And what we know today for sure is that an enabled addict, no matter what age, no matter what gender, doesn't matter. An enabled addict does not recover because really, why should they? What incentive do they yeah. have to stop using what is making them feel better, to stop using a substance or a behavior that is making them not have to feel what they feel when what we really need to do is get underneath what they feel. What's really going on here? Why is your for example, anybody's child, why are they needing to do this to themselves? What's this really about? Because until we know that about ourselves. I know hindsight's yeah. a wonderful thing. And, you know, just hearing you say that, um, you know, parents in general, I think we do need to learn and appreciate that no is actually a sentence and it's okay to say no. You know, can yeah. I have 20 bucks? No, no, you can't. Yeah, you know, but can you know you what? You do that, but but you do that in a non-charged moment, not in the time when they're asking you. you. You sit them down and you say to them, you know what? We love you so much, so much. 
that we have decided that we're not going to support you in addiction in any way. And that, that means money. We're not going to be giving you money. If you need money, you can come to us and tell you what, tell us what you need money for. If it's a product, you, you give them 20 bucks and they bring you a receipt or the next I time they'll get I actually went one bucks. step further and my son, um, he used to say, you know, can I have some money to go and get a new shirt? I'm like, absolutely, honey. I'll come and buy you that shirt because, you know, let's, you know, spend some time together and um, yeah. because, you know, I just didn't 100% yeah. trust him that he was going to take that money and buy that shirt. That's you know, one I way of doing it. that receipt <clears throat> and yep. he could have got a receipt for something else, you know. Who's to say it's the actual yeah, shirt? Yeah, but, but, you know, it's the trust that needs to be built back and if he's not going to build back the trust with you, then the next time he, he doesn't get money. But you sit down with him and you say, we're not going to be giving you money. We're, we're how the way we do that is going to change. It's because we love you. My work, sometimes people tell me, you know, your work is tough love. We don't like tough love. Tough love is no good. And I think that tough love has gotten a really bad rap because sometimes love means no. Sometimes love looks like no. And, and, and addicts hate the word no. They don't want to deal with the word no. And so they'll get angry. They'll maybe push you. They'll maybe call you a horrible name. They'll, you know, they'll act out when they hear the word no. And loved ones have to learn how to withstand that and to have a boundary, a consequence around that kind of behavior. If you're going to live in this house, you do not call me names. So because so let me just finish my thought, because what we need to do is prepare our children for the world that actually exists out. We might put up with stuff from our kids that no boss is going to put up with, no teacher is going to put up with. So we need to teach them how to be part of a world that's healthier. And that means boundaries. It means consequences that they're not going to like. But we're doing it because we love them, not because we don't. So you sit them down beforehand and you tell them these boundaries. You tell them how things have changed. I've written a book. Uh, it's called Loving an Addict, Loving Yourself. It's the top 10 survival tips for loving someone with an addiction. It's won international and USA book awards. And it tells you in that book how to do this. I would suggest it's on Amazon in any country that has Amazon. You can get my book. And I would suggest that people who are in the situation take a look at my book. If you don't want to buy it, you don't have to, of course. But you know, I'm not trying to sell a book here. But I'm telling you that there are things in the book that will be very helpful for you that you can start doing right now. Family-friendly things that you can be doing right now that's going to start changing what you're going through because if nothing changes, nothing changes. Nothing changes. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. And if it's not working for you, if it's not working for your family, the next question has to be, am I willing to try something different? You know, or your teenage son is going to then be 30 and then he's going to be 50 and he's still going to be living at home with you. And we don't want... What would you say to people that they're trying to sit down and have these conversations with their um, children's or like young people and they just don't want to listen? What to, what piece of advice would you give to those people um, to get them? You start setting... Situation? You just set the boundary. That's it. You set the boundary and the consequence. If they're not going to listen to you, they'll, they'll learn it through experience. But you don't yeah. give in to an addict who's being 
manipulative. If you do that, nothing will change. And that really goes back to that I've written I've written on my notes and put it in, you know, big block letters, <laughs> you know, tough love is okay and it really is okay. It's um, so okay, yeah. But, yeah. but it has to come from that place of love. You know, I'm not talking about you're an addict, I hate you, get out of my house. Uh, that's yeah. not the kind of tough love I'm talking about at all. Yeah. yeah. Which we do at times experience the yes. thought of, you know, I sure like I've had moments where and I've said to a few people that there's been times that Harry's pushed me to the absolute limits and in my head I'm like you just really need to stop talking because okay but can be I say something to you or something can I say something to you that may irritate you make you uncomfortable sure so you're saying that Harry pushed me to the point of feeling that way I'm gonna say to you you allowed Harry to push you to that. And I know you didn't know what else to do. I really get that you didn't know what else to do. Now you've got some different ideas. Now you know that there's a book out there that can help you. If you look up my name, Candace Platter, and YouTube, I've got so many videos on these subjects. And I've got a TEDx talk. And, you know, all of these things are going to help you understand what you can do differently so that you don't allow Harry push you to that point, so that you have boundaries that are set up. Even if people he doesn't like too bad. You're the adult. He's the child. He lives in your home that he's not paying the mortgage on. We did get past the stage and he's totally at the other end and comes Good. over every Sunday for dinner and, you know, messages me and calls me. And so we've got through That's the, great. the really bad part, which is which is great. And there is always hope for that to happen. So Absolutely. that's great. Absolutely. From your opinion and in your experience, why do you think kids end up going down the path of drug addiction or alcohol addiction um do you feel that it's comes from a place of being readily available um them wanting to be part of cool kids gang um family situations not being good so they're kind of digging their head in the sand going this will all just make it better um or does it stem from that fam family dramas i suppose if you know if their parents have had addictions as well. Well, I would say that it stems from all of the above. I mean, you've, you've laid it out beautifully for about what it stems from. It stems from somebody not wanting to feel what they feel. That's what's underneath it. But but um, so I, I'm sorry, I just got distracted. Um, so what happens, especially for young people, happens for older people as well. We talked about a few minutes ago about people not saying to themselves, oh, I think I'll become an addict. Nobody does that. So they start using a substance and all of a sudden they feel better. They don't have to think about what's going on at home. They don't have to think about the fact that they failed a test or their report card's going to be awful or their girlfriend just broke up with them or whatever they don't want to feel. I hate myself, you know. So they use a drug, but drugs are made to be addictive in the human body. So there's a progression it's called progressive. Addiction is progressive and there's a tolerance that's built up in our bodies, which means that when we use, if we're using a fair bit, we have to use more to get the same effect and then more and more and more to get the same hit. And that's how they get into actual addiction. Because at first, they're just trying something out because their friends are, they want to be cool, all the things that you said. I don't want to think about the fact that I've got acne on my face, whatever it is that, you know, upsetting to them. Um, I had a fight with my mother this morning. I don't want to go home. There's all kinds of things that they don't want to feel when they're, I, 
I'm very far away from being a teenager, but I remember what it was like to be one. So it isn't about, you know, addiction coming on suddenly. It's about more of a progressive way of using a drug. I smoked a joint last night, felt good, felt better. I slept better. I didn't care about my problems. I think I'll smoke another joint today and I'll smoke another joint today. And then I'm going to smoke two joints because I'll need that much. And then it's going to get to three. And then I'm going to try maybe some opioids, maybe some, you know, something else that's going to take this away from me. And that's how addiction gets hold of somebody. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you think worldwide the situation is getting better or worse? I think it's getting worse and I think it's getting worse because that doesn't mean there isn't hope but I think it's getting worse because it's not just families that are enabling their addicts because they don't know what else to do. We've got societal enabling going on all over the place. We certainly have it in Canada and the US. It's probably happening in Australia and other countries. Somebody's getting rich off this. Somebody's benefiting from this horrible situation. And treatment, you know, the way treatment is going, we talked about the 12-step programs. Most people go into rehab and they're told you have a disease, which they don't. People think it's a, a brain disease because there's brain involvement in addiction, but there's brain involvement in everything I do in my body just because we're wired that way. It doesn't mean it's an illness. So I have a disease, I'm powerless over the disease, and I'm going to relapse because that's what addicts do. This is what they're taught in rehab. This is ridiculous, you know, so they relapse. So they go for 30 days or 90 days or whatever, and they learn this stuff and they come out and they relapse and families aren't worked with in most rehab. So they, so the families, they're relieved to have their children or their loved ones be away for a while because boy, can they use that time. Um, but nobody's working with the family. So they don't change anything that they're doing. The addict comes out of treatment and comes back into a dysfunctional system because nobody's worked with you and the addict relapse. And the family says, but we paid a hundred thousand billion gazillion dollars for this. Mm-hmm. And that's why that happens. Yeah. So, you know, we need to be providing, um, we need to be, be providing prevention strategies. We need to be providing, uh, treatment options that don't talk about disease being and powerlessness. So you don't tell a family that your addict has a disease that he's powerless over and he'll always have it and he'll keep relapsing. That's dangerous to tell an addict. That's dangerous to tell a family. It takes away personal responsibility from the addict, from the, from the, from the family, from big pharma out there, from governments. And the reason it's getting worse is because the options that we have for addicts are not realistic. They're not based in what really works, in my humble opinion. I always get amazed at, like when I start a podcast, how quickly the time goes and the conversations and the the questions just keep rolling. What is one piece of advice you would give to parents that have children potentially going down the dark rabbit hole of despair and what's one piece of advice you'd give to teenagers because I know that they listen they listen to this podcast I know they do okay that's good hello all of you teenagers who are listening that's terrific I remember what it was like to be in your shoes. It's, uh, you know, it's funny. We have this <clears throat> kind of this euphemism, this word where we talk 
talk about people partying, like addicts are partying. True addiction is not a party. This is not fun to be in active addiction. Your son knows that. Anybody who's been in active addiction knows that. So if you're a teenager and you're listening, you know, partying is about maybe every other Saturday night you go out and you drink some or you maybe do a line of Coke or something, but you're not doing it every day. If you can trust me as an addict, if you can trust me, don't get yourself started. Make the choice to not even get started. Be careful with this stuff. It's poison in the system. It's toxic in the system and nobody should be having it in their system, right? So so that's what I'd say to teenagers. Um, if you find yourself in the throes of addiction, please get some help as there's help out there for you. What I say to the parents, to, to the loved ones, is that if you do, first of all, never give up. Don't ever give up because you never know when the moment is going to be that you're addict comes to you and says, I'm done. I need help. I don't want to do this anymore. And if you make it uncomfortable for them to do it, it'll happen faster. So, but if the time, if, if, if you get to a place where you really can't have your addict there, you're going to cut ties. You've done several things and it hasn't worked. And you know, the addict is just not making the choice to recover. Um, what I say is if you're going to close the door, don't deadbolt the door. Don't lock the door. Allow them to come back if they'll be respectful of your house, if they'll live by your boundaries, if, you know, let them come back and try again. And if you're at a place where you don't want your addict to be living in your house, maybe meet them once a week on a Sunday for coffee and a donut somewhere. Keep a connection if you can. So don't give up. Don't slam that door and lock it. That's like one of the worst things you can do, but don't allow an addict to manipulate you. You know, we, we have to do some work on ourselves. If we're codependent and people pleasing, we have to do some work on ourselves. We expect addicts to work on themselves and we don't work on ourselves, first of all, it won't work and it's kind of unfair. Oh, I love that. I love that. And it's exactly what I was saying to myself and to all those around me. So yay, high five me um, for winging it through the right way. Um, Candice, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. I will put all your links and everything to your books and to your website, to your program to to be able to contact you. I will put that in the comments. Oh, can I say one more thing? Absolutely. Can I say one more thing? At Love With Boundaries, we give people free 30-minute consultations over Zoom. There's no strings attached you know, no expectation. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire. The link to that is on the website, lovewithboundaries.com. We will contact you right away. We know that if you're con- if you're connecting with us, you're ready for change and it's not going to wait. We need to help you now. So we will get in touch with you right away. We'll set up that call. We are international because we're on Zoom. We just heard today from somebody in Portugal. We've had clients in Australia and New Zealand before. So if you're interested in checking us out to see who we are. We see who you are. We see whether we're a fit. If we are, we work with you. If not, that's okay. So the link to the questionnaire is on the website. If you need help, we're here to help you. This is what we do at Love With Boundaries is we work families and with the addicts when they're ready. So I just wanted to let people know that. Awesome. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me and enjoy the snow. Very jealous. And just like that, it's a wrap. I hope you've enjoyed the last 20 or so minutes and have walked away with some golden nuggets of information. If you'd like to join our Raising Resilient Teens Facebook group, the link will be in the comments. And until next time, ciao.